the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, arch fiends and sarcastic succubuses, rye silkies and carry comfort. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Um, hey, in the studio with me is, is my old friend uh, Randy Majori, who is um, an actor that, and uh, director that um, I used to work with back when I was doing a lot of drama in New York City, and also he was the best man at my wedding. Um, but let me tell you a little, let, we'll talk some, uh, let me tell you all out there a little bit more of what we're, of what we have for the interview this time. We have an interview with Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett. They are the co-authors of this new alternate history novel, The Alexander Inheritance. And, hey, it's not a 1632 novel, but it is set in that universe. This is a book that's part of the larger A City Shard series that Eric's 1632 Ring of Fire series books um, also fall into. But the Alexander Inheritance is about a huge passenger ship. Hey, you ever been on a cruise, Randy? I have been on short cruises, yes. Yeah. A couple of short cruises. Have you ever, like, worked on one of those? I've you, never worked. Yeah, you don't. Fortunately, sing, I'm not a song and dance man on yeah. a ship. But <laughs> well, um, this this giant cruise ship, passenger ship, gets thrown back in time to the Mediterranean in 293 BC, um, which is uh, around the time of Alexander the Great, but just after he dies, when everything's in chaos and crisis. Mm-hmm. It's a heck of a lot farther back than 1632, which is um, our big series from Eric Flint um, about the American town that gets thrown back in time to uh, the middle of Europe in 1630s. The crew and the passenger team have to figure out how to feed the 5,000 people aboard, figure out where they are, and to come up with some kind of weapon to stave off invaders who um, the whole Mediterranean is teeming with people who are very good at um, fighting and killing, and they don't have any qualms about it. Might makes right in 293 B.C. in the Mediterranean. Um, and there are also plenty of locals who want to engage in trade. It's a world in lots of commotion, uh, lots of dynastic problems, and our guys uh, are thrown right into the middle of it and have to deal with um, deal with it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. But first, here's the news. Howdy, partner. Hey, we have a very cool, all-original, weird Western short story anthology out in July. This is Straight out of Tombstone, which is edited by David Boop. I am going to let Randy Majori, who is a trained voice guy, uh, <clears throat> unlike me, uh, deliver uh, deliver you a synopsis of what the story is about. This is um, straight out of Tombstone, this great anthology that's out this month. Cowboys and Monsters. These tales may not be the ones your grandpappy spun around the chuck wagon campfire, unless he was talking about the soul-sucking ghosts, steam-powered demons, and wayward aliens. 
17 Stories That Unearthed the Monstrous Side of the Old West. Larry Correa explores the roots of his best-selling Monster Hunter International series in Bubba Shackelford's Professional Monster Killers. Jim Butcher reveals the origin of one of the Dresden Files series' most popular characters in Fistful of Warlock. And Kevin J. Anderson's Dan Shamble, Zombie P.I., finds himself in a showdown in High Midnight. Plus stories from Alan Dean Foster, Sarah A. Hoyt, Jody Lynn Nye, Michael A. Stackpole, and many more. The good, the bad, and the bloody. Straight Out of Tombstone is now available at booksellers everywhere, so uh, check it out. So, Randy, uh, we used to work back in New York. Uh, like in the late 90s, we did this thing called Automatic Vaudeville. And that's really where you and I met and kind of became friends and and and, and uh, co-workers. <laughs> so what do you remember of, of doing that stuff? What, what it was was um, there's a radio station in New York called WBAI, and um, it's this old uh, Pacifica radio station. And there was a, there's a guy on there named Jim Freund who's been forever. A lot of you may have um, may have heard his show, The Hour of the Wolf. Um, and he had us on, a, was it once a month? Yeah. Once a month. For, for a while. Um, and we would come in and do a, uh, a, it was kind of a, I always said it was a cross between, uh, the Prairie Home Companion and, uh, the Twilight Zone and the Twilight Zone <laughs> or something like that. Um, and it was so much fun. We did it all live with, with Foley that we created ourselves. And um, we had a band, the Trouble Dolls, who um, who mm-hmm. were there live as well. And it was crazy. We had usually about seven actors mm-hmm. and, and a band. And we did this show. And, and we did it early in the morning on Saturday. And the call time was what, like 4.30? Or it was 4.30, crazy. 5 o'clock. I think we went on at 6 a.m., was it? Or 5 to 6 a.m.? Was the time slot? Yeah, it was. It was early, but we, you know, it was just fun. It was, mm-hmm. it was really fun. Um, what do you remember about the the shows that you you played a lot of my lead characters that I wrote and directed the thing? So. Um, I, I remember. Uh, I was thinking about this before we started talking earlier. Uh, in that, I remember uh, Jake and Amanda. And wouldn't it be pretty to think so? Yeah, that the was our ongoing, ongoing serial. <laughs> <laughs> the ongoing adventures of Jake and Amanda. Um, they were seeking. They had been. Mister Death during World War One had had been so busy he forgot to pick them up um, when they got killed. And uh, and they couldn't find their papers. And, yes, because they didn't have their papers in order. <laughs> their papers were not in order. Papers. So they were they were seeking out Mister Death. Um, your papers are not. What is that? Your papers are not in order. <laughs> <laughs> so he couldn't take them, and he promised he would sooner or later. So they've been they're they're ghost-like ghouls that have been wandering the surface of the earth for years, and, trying to find death, so he'll take them. And into sort of his time glory. traveling in a way. Time traveling, I I remember because we we were in uh, the future, we were in the past, we we're in the that present World War One uh, time period, and. Um, 
I think I remember Jake and Amanda ending up at a rave party from what I, I, I recall one of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, they could be anywhere. We went to a bullfight. And the... Bullfight. Um, yeah. and, and Amanda, we used to travel in the sedan because Amanda, I'm sorry, Amanda always liked the roominess of the sedan. So that's how we traveled. That's how we got around. It was a big black sedan. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was pretty fun. And uh, also, I believe you were the... Star of Tulakara, freelance shaman. I was, was the the lead character in. Yeah, or was that he, me? Well, you were you were, and you always did the. I was always the straight man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you were Tulakara. Well, yeah, I, no, I got to be the uh, the droning uh, detective, and you got to be like the the murderers or whatever the hell he mm-hmm. was he mm-hmm. was doing. So he would go around and do, like, get involved with with magical shenanigans under mm-hmm. the streets of New York. Right, so. right, exactly. Yeah, that was my that was my favorite because it sort of created this whole uh surrealistic world of life underground in New York. What was going on below uh during the night? People were, you know, this whole society of folks that lived underground and held rave parties in certain parts and certain tunnels and you just traveled. You got in through a certain portal somewhere in Manhattan. And you entered the portal, and you just went on this whole trip underground. And I don't even know if we ever got out of there. No, he just he <laughs> lived. There. I think he lived under the Peace Fountain at St. John's right. up on a Broadway or uh, 111th and uh, Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but uh, it, that was incredible fun, and we did these weird. Stupid commercials that were great. And held, on. held on. Held <laughs> on. Roach spray. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what were the other ones? Uh, held on and uh, squash. Yes. The squash council. We always did the squash council. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we did little skits involved with the commercials as well that were fun. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a Prairie Home Companion ripoff, but, but we just took it a lot farther than that. And I think we were better. I, we had some high quality work out there. I thought, yeah, I mean, we it, had some great actors on the show, mm-hmm. some really yeah. good people, and yeah. some great music. And uh, right, yeah. But we were doing it for free, and it just got to be. And I got a job doing real audio drama for being paid, and then it became mm-hmm. something that was hard to keep up after that. And you were in some of those as well, or at least one of them, right? I was in about three of them, I think. Yeah, we did these audio dramas uh, at yeah. the Sci-Fi Channel at SciFi.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to play uh, uh, Zorgo the Werewolf, Werewolf in one, and I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to work with uh, Tim Curry on another one. Yeah, that was the box one, right? The the box one. Um, we did that at the Museum of the Radio, Museum of Radio and Television. That was my Closest I've ever gotten to Broadway as an actor. <laughs> that was cool. And Tim Curry played a box mm-hmm. that had secrets. Um, yeah, and I got to play an evil father. Yeah, you were the bad guy. I was the bad guy in yeah, that one. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> so, so we had a great deal of fun. Um, we we worked. the The show was was called Automatic Vaudeville, and you can you could find some of them still out there um, if you do diligent searches. Also. Um, and I have record. And I have recordings of them all. <laughs> so if anybody ever wants to hear it, you can ask me. And uh, and all of the seeing ear theater stuff is is you can find online, although it's tied up in uh, in legal 
hell at NBC still. So we can't put it out to sell Brian and I who were doing the shows. But, uh, yeah, it was incredible fun. And that's the, if you ever wonder why I like doing audio drama and have done it now at Bain, it's because that, that was the roots of it. Mm-hmm. This automatic vaudeville. And, and mm-hmm. if you didn't live in New Orleans now, you could, uh, I'd pull you back in, Randy. <laughs> be all over these well, you know, the, the world gets smaller with podcasts and, and voice sampling and whatnot too. So just give me a call anytime. All right. Well, <laughs> Got really? my own equipment now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about doing something soon. I think we're going to maybe do something with um, this John Ringo and David Weber series that uh, many of the listeners will know what I'm talking about. So, All right, onward and upward with the arts. I want to welcome Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett to the podcast. Hi, folks. Hi. Hello. Eric Flint is the creator of the New York Times bestselling alternate history Ring of Fire series, beginning with the groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, and continuing through many bestselling book stories and collaborations. The Ring of Fire books are like the stars these days. There's so many of them. Eric's writing career began in 1997 with the science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons, and with David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisaria series, and a great many other writers have also collaborated with Eric, including David Weber, Charles E. Gannon, Katie Wentworth, Reiki Spore, Dave Freer, um, and others. And with Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff, Eric co-authored 1636 The Kremlin Games and 1636 The Viennese Waltz, and now The Alexander Inheritance. Paula Goodlett was involved with the 1632 Ring of Fire community since 2003 and is now the chair of the 1632 editorial board. Paula is also the author of many Ring of Fire stories in addition to the uh, the novels. Gorg Huff is a Texan who now lives in Indiana who has done a great deal of research for the 1632 community and written numerous stories for the Grantville Gazette and many with Paula Goodlett. Gorg and Paula's Russian thread uh, eventually became the inspiration for 1636 Kremlin Games. And now Eric, Paula, and Gorg have teamed up again to produce a new novel that is not set in the Grantville era, but is part of the whole Shards of a City saga. That book is The Alexander Inheritance and is now at booksellers everywhere. So folks, what, what led to this, this departure to another time and another place? What's the origin of this uh, this novel? A few years back, um, Shade Mahmoud and uh, Art Manor Press were, sp- were uh, sponsoring a, a seminar on board a cruise ship every year called Sail for Success. And this was several years back. I was one of the instructors on the cruise, and Paul and Gord were two of the students. And there were some other people involved in the 1632 series who were there also. Walt Boys were right. Uh, I forgotten who I'm probably overlooking. But anyway, there were a bunch of us on this cruise that went to the Bahamas. And one day, uh, second day on the cruise, I think, or third, I don't remember which one, we stopped and we spent the uh, afternoon in a, in a cabana that I rented uh, on a beach in one of the Bahamas Islands. And... We got to talking about the possibility of using a cruise ship as the sort of centerpiece of a Nassidi Shards novel. 
the first issue we had to deal with was a technical one, um, which was, would it be possible to have a ship that could burn pretty much anything in the way of fuel? Because if you had to depend upon uh, fairly refined fuel, then obviously um, that would place real limits on where you could go and, and, and what time frame. And I was particularly interested in something that took place in the ancient world. Um, but it was pointed out by uh, both Rick and Walt that, that flex fuel engines were hadn't quite been brought on online, but they're very close to it. And so that's it's actually a sort of near future novel. It's not actually a contemporary novel, although we don't specify that in the book. Um, so we worked out all the technical details that day as to whether it'd be feasible to have a cruise ship that would be transported back over 2,000 years ago into the uh, Mediterranean during ancient times, during the Hellenistic period, and have it be able to keep functioning, at least for several years. And once we were satisfied that was possible, then uh, once we came back from the cruise, then uh, Paul and Gorg and I started developing a plot for the actual thing. And... Uh, we kicked around several ideas, but the one I liked the best was to set it in that period right after Alexander's death, um, the so-called um, age of the Diodaki, which is just a Greek word meaning successors, um, because it was um, a very exciting time, let's put it that way, um, which wasn't particularly good for the people living through it, but, uh, um, you know, we're writing adventure novels. Um so, and then once we got squared away, that was what we were going to do. Uh, we developed the plot, and uh, and then the book got written out of that. But anyway, that's the origins of it. Why um, why'd you bring Paul and, and Gorgon particularly, or did they just sort of uh, become the ones that were writing it? I, <laughs> I don't know, honestly. Really. Other than the fact that they're really good writers, but... I, well, I've worked with Paul and Gorg before. We'd already written, well, we actually written three novels together because in addition to the two you mentioned, uh, we've also written 1637, The Volga Rules, which, which is coming out next year. It's been sort of sitting on the shelf because we haven't gotten that far in the 1632 series, but I've done a lot of work with both of them. So, and uh, I think, if I recall correctly, but one of them can correct me, uh, first of all, they were interested. Secondly, they needed the work because they didn't have anything else at the moment they were working on. And so it just seemed like a natural, you know, I have other co-authors that I work in the, in the 1632 series with. One of them might very well have been someone I could have worked with, but they were all tied up. One way or another. Am I remembering that right, guys? I mean, I may be sort of. Pretty much. Uh, while we were on the island, the idea was that it was going to be one a bit like Ram Rebellion with a bunch of different people. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And That's right. then about that. once we got home, we set up the file and we set up the thing and we sent everybody and nobody did anything. So Paul and I just started writing. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, because that yeah. is, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Is, you know, we write five days a week. The writing thing. High water. So, so we are, we're in 321 B.C. or B.C.E. 
and we're in the Mediterranean. Um, Eric mentioned it was a uh, the curse of the interesting time in history. Um, what's going on in this era? What makes it so? Uh, and since you're authors, you can send them back anywhere you want. So this is where you, <laughs> you godlike decided to set down the ship. Uh, what's going on in this era? That's... It was a really exciting period of history. You know, it, it it really wasn't good for regular people. But if you were, you know, Ptolemy, for instance, you were really interested in what was going on with the other heirs to Alexander. Uh, the men who were his, like, what, sub-generals? So Alexander has Generals. has conquered the world and then promptly died, right? One another. Yeah. Okay. Pretty yeah, much. he's dead uh, the thing about, we start. Yeah, the thing about it is the Alexander, Alexander's empire is still there. It hasn't collapsed yet. And the, the sort of crucial, this is one of those times when even a very, very little change can have ma could have massive results because in our history Alexander's uh, empire didn't actually come up come apart until his brother and his son were both dead up till then they were all playing like all the generals were at least pretending that the empire was still the empire and it was still like Alexander's empire and they were still loyal to it uh, you know, and that's how it happened in our history. But a very little change, just keeping those the those two people alive, may meant potentially at least that the empire wouldn't collapse. You add in the the cruise ship, and you've got a massive change. And not only are we going to save Alexander's empire, we're also going to introduce modern concepts like oh the end of slavery and not sacrificing people to the local gods, that sort of thing. Well, if you call that progress, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, the the name of the ship, what is it, the Queen of the Sea? The Queen of the Sea, yeah. And uh, how could, it's a cruise ship, it's not a, you know, it's not a military boat. Um what do you do when something like that pops up? How can you secure, uh, what are the challenges you might face? The biggest first challenge you're going to run into is you're going to run out of food really, really quickly. Because these things are set up for a four or five or six day cruise. Which means they've got food and supplies to feed people really well for a week or so. But after that, they're going to start running out. So food becomes absolutely critical. After that, it's fuel. With the flex fuel engines, you can use pretty much anything that burns, but even that isn't all that anything liquid that burns. But even that isn't all that interesting. You can't just use alcohol because to get pure enough alcohol to burn, you've got to do distilling. So you've really got to come up with something that you can burn. And to get the energy to run the engines to power all your systems. The third thing you've got to do is you've got to stay alive. These are not, 
as Marie Easley says fairly early in the book, these are not civilized people. These are violent, dangerous people. They will kill you to take what you have because they don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. So those are the big challenges that you face right at first. Yeah. And the um, the cruise ship is thrown back with a with a tender ship that is also thrown back with them into this time. Um, so there's a there's a second ship that's that's part of the story. <laughs> that can make excursions apart from the, uh, the okay. cruise ship. Yeah. Yeah, the Reliance. They needed some fuel, so we took them both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's, that was a big thing. We, that bought us that little bit of extra time. Uh, if it had just been the, sh the fuel in the cruise ship, there was a very real chance that they wouldn't have made it to Trinidad to start drilling. Mm -hmm. uh, so... What about the security issue? How can you defend a cruise ship against determined attackers? What What are some ideas that may occur to them? Well, it's uh, the the one that uh, we came up with right that first day on the beach in uh, one of the Bahamas Islands was the idea of the uh, steam cannon. Um, the thing about a cruise ship of this type is that it's a... Um, um, it's an it's a hell of a industrial powerhouse. I mean, people don't think of it that way, um, but really, that's what cruise ships are. Um, it, you know, I mean, the amount of of um, the, the amount of resources that those that that are represented on board one of those things it's really enormous. Um, when yeah, tremendous infrastructure. Up, you know, it's 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 got enough. It really is a, a you know, it's got enough power to to, to power a small city. Um, so there was no lack of of uh, of power. Um, the issue becomes, you know, well, okay, fine. How exactly are you going to? What what are you going to design specifically? Because the one thing that does not exist is uh, large numbers of firearms, um, which is um, it's generally a characteristic of any alternate history novel I work in that involves a time travel element that um, I'm not really interested in sending back military units um, because that just gets to be a very straightforward kind of shoot 'em up, um, which I don't myself find particularly interesting. So, I, you know, I sort of deliberately look for ways to handicap the good guys, if you will, uh, so that it's it's not it's not really that easy to figure out what they're going to do, um, because they don't start with what are obvious. Um, you know, obvious resources. Um, they have some, of course, but uh, I just think it's more interesting uh, for them to have to figure out uh, what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, scraping, you know, with what's actually available, uh, which is not typically the stuff that's ready-made. Um, you know, it's not what you call survival stuff. Um, so that's what we did here. Um, 
And I also wanted a very different scenario uh, from the one that we had in uh, 1632, uh, in the 1632 series. I, I, I wasn't interested in writing a clone of the 1632 series, let's put it that way. Um, I wanted something that was would have a completely different dynamic in terms of of what gets resolved and how it gets resolved. And uh, and you get that in this book because the um, um, the it, there's no way you can turn this cruise ship. It's not an analog to the to the town of Granville in the 1632 series. It's just not analogous in any way. Um, and the reason is there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is just simply the age of uh, uh, you know. I mean, anybody who's been on a cruise ship knows perfectly well that even in Caribbean cruises, the more extreme in other ones, you know, it, it's not a young uh, clientele um, for no other reason they can't afford the prices. Um, so you've got a, a ship with five thousand passengers and or 4,000 passengers, and you got a crew that's very young, typically, but it's also polyglot as hell. It's, uh, it's multinational. And then you've got passengers who have a lot of knowledge, typically. I mean, they're typically going to be better educated on average than average people are, um, but they're also going to typically be in their 60s uh, or older. Yeah. And that makes it kind of an interesting challenge in terms of an adventure story. One of the things that I liked about the book was how yeah. the the modern characters seem kind of soft at first, but we 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 slowly come to see that that they are kind of soft, but at the same time, they are the survivors of thousands of years of of, of human beings killing, and they. Um, they actually are when they get roused to it. They they they're willing to do what it takes to survive. Yeah, well, that's sort of the the human condition. You don't. Given the option, most of us wouldn't won't go around killing people, but when it's necessary, we can do it. Uh. <laughs> If we gotta, we can't. So not quite so yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, they certainly, I mean, those steam cannons were, the way that, that y'all described them was <laughs> pretty, they just, they um, were effective. So, well, let's discuss some of the specific uptimer characters who are thrown back. Um, there's the ship captain. Uh, you talked about, Eric, you mentioned that there's a, I mean, it's a multicultural cast more than, more than perhaps Grantville. Um, or, or at least, yeah, people, he's a Norwegian, right? Yeah, he's Norwegian. Yeah. Lars Flodden. Pretty much the entire, most of the uh, <coughs> of the bridge uh, personnel are Norwegian, which is fairly typical in cruise lines. Uh, um, princess lines, for instance, they would typically be mostly Italian. Um, you know, the different cruise lines are, are, you know, different that way in terms of their composition, but um, they tend to have a certain nationality, tends to dominate different departments, um, and it would be quite, it would not be unusual at all to have uh, Norwegians running, or other Scandinavians, but Norwegians, uh, you know, in that position, so that's why we went with that. 
But the first thing that does, I mean, if it were American, it might be the first thing that occurs to him would be, you know, how are we going to set up a, a self-governing ship here? But he's, 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 while he's from the Western tradition, he's, you know, he's more interested in, I'm the captain and, and I got to be the captain here. I don't, honestly, I don't think any captain, no matter what their nationality would be too keen on the idea of just, you know, letting anybody take oil, uh, yeah. control the ship. I mean, I just, I don't think that has much to do with the fact he's Norwegian. I think it has to do with the fact he's a, <laughs> he's a ship captain. He's a captain. And, yeah. and he's, you know, and he just thinks of the idea of, you know, letting just, you know, anybody run this thing. And it's like, oh boy, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, um. You know, that said, it's, it's not really a huge issue. I mean, they they resolved that fairly well, pretty easily. Um, and they do have the advantage, well, some least disadvantage also, that they have a real um, professional politician on board uh, who's the character of, uh, of uh, uh, Wiley. Um, Al Wiley. Yeah. Al Wiley. So, you know, who's kind of a... He's a bit of a mixed bag in some ways, but on the other hand, he, he does have experience. Uh, Should I tell the story of how, how he ended up being a, a, a Mormon? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, originally, Al Wiley was uh, the Big Al Wiley, the congressman from the 14th District of Georgia. Who, who was quoted as saying at one point in one of his political, uh, uh, uh in one of his speeches, uh, folks, I'm so, I'm such a, my neck's so red it glows. Um, <laughs> we finished the first two or three chapters of that and we sent them to Eric and he said, no, 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 no. Tony will never go for that. And I said, but we're going to make him the president. And then, then Eric said, but I'll, in that case, I'll never go for that. (laughs) 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 And that is, (laughs) Big Al Wiley got transmuted (laughs) from from a Georgia Baptist to uh, a Utah Mormon. Yeah, he moved west. Well, I also, I also thought it would be, um, just kind of amusing in general. Um, I think one of the things that happens in the book is that uh, you wind up with with Mormonism becoming quite popular among uh, a number of the indigenous population um, because of the role being played by uh, by Wiley uh, in in the whole story. So I. I, I I thought that would make for an amusing switch, so we, we went that way with it. Um, it's always kind of tricky how you how you decide to handle these things because um, um, yeah, I don't know how to put this. You don't want to. People tend to get ticked off if they think you're being unfair about something. Um, and as long as they think you're being fair in the way you're portrayed,
So, uh, to some degree, we plan for fun, but only up to a point. Um, and, um, um, you know, he's, he's actually quite a, um, not only a prominent character, he's a very important one. Um, so, anyway, that, that's... I don't know. I would... The thing about it is, if it wouldn't matter if it was Nancy Pelosi or Tom DeLay. In all that matters back then, mm-hmm. all going to be on the same side. They're, they're going to appear generally. You can generally count on all of them to be opposed to human sacrifice. Yeah. Generally <laughs> count on on them to be opposed to sl- chattel slavery. You know, <laughs> there are differences, and they're very real in the modern world. But you go back to the to the to the age of the Diadochi and the differences seem a whole lot more minor. We're yeah, the same all dynamic. Yeah. the good guys. Yeah. And, and it's, see, I mean, the thing about Al is that it seems like he has, this This is a situation where his, his real talents are finally able to come to the front. He, he doesn't have to be that wheeler dealer politician uh, who's not really doing much in Congress. He's, Right. He's got a project that needs doing that he can throw himself into here. And he does. Yeah. And he does it very well, actually. Yeah. I don't know. I I always sort of figured that he would, whether he was uh, the from the 14th District of Georgia or Utah. or I, I figured on him, given the opportunity, given that situation, the guy's a professional politician. That means he can persuade people. You don't get there without that ability. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and then you put him in a situation where his personal charisma, personal persuasion, and ha- and the principles that we all share are all that's left. And yeah, I I can very easily see pretty much anyone in Congress today turning out to be very much like Al Wiley did turn out as the father of his nation. Mm-hmm. Well, also along, they have a scholar who speaks a little ancient Greek. Um, thank, thank, thank the authorial gods. <laughs> so uh, maybe Paula, you could tell us more about Professor uh, Mary Easley. She's got a doctorate in the history of the time and specialized in Ptolemaic Egypt. So um, she has knowledge that nobody else has. And she also notices that some of the stuff is on, on Wiki is wrong. And she kind of saves the day in her own way. I, I, we really had a lot of fun with Marie Easley. We really yeah. did. Of course, well, we had a lot of fun with that book altogether. She's a pretty tough old bird or young bird. She's not a pushover as a person either, which perhaps her being a little older helps with. She, she knows what she's talking about, and she knows she knows what she's talking about. Well, she's based on Virginia uh-huh. DeMars. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, who is much the same as Marie Easley. In fact, it's kind of a sideways tuckerization of Virginia DeMars. Uh, but that's who she's based on, and she is a tough old bird, and she gets done what she gets done, and she sticks to her principles. And, you know, you can disregard that, or, you know, you can be upset with her, but that doesn't matter. She's going to do what she thinks is right. And one of the things she brings up, continually is that this is not a, a safe age 
that <laughs> that these people will kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Southern characters, the main character, and of all the Southerners at the time, he had the closest 
to a modern perception and modern sensibility on issues of race. And so you could work with, with Houston. Um, Andrew Jackson is a major character in the series, and I present him quite positively in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's only so far you can go with somebody like Andrew Jackson. He was a harsh, cold son of a bitch. You know, I mean, he really was. Um, and ruthless as all hell. And that's the kind of challenge you face, is... Uh, is working with it. When you have the time travel element, it makes it easier because you have a modern... Uh, so we had modern characters on the ship who were just utterly appalled at, for instance, the institution of slavery. Yeah. Um, especially the way it's practiced in the ancient world, and they react to it. It's not just something they cluck their tongues about. I mean, they do things about it. Um, so when you have a time travel element, you know, you can, get, you can deal with that problem because you do have people reflecting you know, the attitudes of uh, of a modern culture. But a point that Gorg made earlier is quite true. We've run, we run into the same thing in the 1632 series. Um, the political differences between modern Americans, as great as they may seem today, but if you take them, move them back three, 400 years in the past, are one hell of a lot smaller. Um, just because there's a lot of commonality people accept without even realizing um, there are a few outliers, but not very many. Um, and, um, you know, so that's just one of the features that comes up in a, in a story like that. Yeah. Well, one of the guys that, that's the modern characters who's trying to integrate, who's comes to sort of integrate himself into, uh, this past successfully is Dag, uh, Jacobson. And uh, he's he's sort of the hero character of the book. He's my favorite character, the environmental compliance officer who's actually the chief engineer. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about him. Well, he has to sort of he part of the a big part of it is he's one of the probably the crew character who gets the most direct exposure to the locals to our downtimers and some of it is very uh, intimate exposure as well yes go on sorry <laughs> yeah 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 there is that there is that uh that's that, that that's the carrot part the stick part is they're going to kill him if he doesn't prove to them that he's tough enough mm -hmm. and you see him taking on some of their approaches when he tosses basically a friend a live hand grenade I, I, should, should I not snurk that? Yeah, well, the uh, yeah, I mean, don't go too far into, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, but it, it sort of, he didn't, doesn't have a lot of choice, but for a modern person, you've gotta, you gotta get there. And he does. And that takes a certain amount of just personal guts. Yeah, and smarts, and the, I mean, he knows how to make a hand grenade. So. Yeah, he, he is, you're right, um, um, he is, insofar as there's any one single hero of the book, and they're, you know, it's, a, it's very much a composite cast, but insofar as there is any one particular, it probably is Doug. Um, um, partly just because he fits a number of the, you know, criteria you wind up wanting to have. Um um, uh, and, uh, plus he's got the romantic interest. Um, uh, oh, that takes a while to develop, but, um, 
Oh, you know, he was fun to work with. Um, most of his characters are um, once once you get into them. Um, but yeah, the, he's he does have to demonstrate pretty early on um, that he's willing to be ruthless too. You know, uh, when necessary, and at some point he he actually makes to some of the you know, downtimers, the locals, which is, you know, that, that don't get too carried away with this notion here that we're all that soft. Because, um, you know, you, you may be a little surprised. Um, and that's true enough. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Well, some of the downtimer characters also are, are fascinating. Um, there is maybe uh, talking about Roxanne, who is the widow of Alexander the Great, who's who's maybe uh, the the main downtimer character we we meet, although we meet many. Um, that might be a w- good way to lead into discussion of also the extremely complex political situation a little bit that's going on. Um, tell us about Roxanne. Well, at the end of the lady who had a heck of a, a heck of a way to go, you know, in, in our timeline, uh, all of Alexander's relatives were murdered. His whole family his son was, was, was wiped murdered. out. His whole, his entire family was wiped out. Some of them by his mother. <laughs> so, you know, Roxanne has got a really tough row to hoe, and honestly, the the big ship is like her salvation. So she picked up on it real quick, as a as a way, partly to survive and to have her son survive. She comments at one time that yeah. that the generals are in charge and that the the royal people are somewhat at their mercy. Yeah. Because they were. Alexander ruled through a cult of personality, and when he was gone, people the people who were dependent on him were utterly at the mercy of the generals who didn't know what to do either. And yeah, that, I mean, part of the yeah, okay, part of the issue is that this is is always been true with societies this type. There was no clear line of succession when he died, because he didn't establish one. Um, so that's what made it so difficult. Was that that there was no one person that that pretty much everybody could agree. Okay, you know, yeah, that person is is clearly the legitimate heir because there just wasn't anyone in that position. Um, you know, because he died so so suddenly and unexpectedly that, um, you know, he, well, one, he didn't have time to set up a succession. And secondly, given Alexander, it's not clear he really was even thinking in those terms because, uh, I mean, he, he had a certain egomania issue of his own. Um, so, you know, uh, for those reasons, he just... Um, it, you know, he, he he left no careers. I mean, I mean, there was there several possibilities, but there was nobody who was, you know, someone that everybody could just sort of all agree. Okay, fine, yeah, you know, whether I like him or not doesn't really matter. 
um, you know, that, that you know, if, if part of the problem was his own son by Roxanne hadn't been born yet when he, when he died. So that was problem number one. Um, but, you know, it went from there also. There were other possibilities. Uh, none of them were were all that good or all that clear. And, um, you know, it was just a mess. I mean, when he died, and, of course, <laughs> from my point of view as an author, it made it all the better, you know, because uh, that's what I liked about the scenario was that it was a real mess because... Messes are not good in real life, but they're great when you're writing books like this. Um, well, you got Ptolemy in Egypt, who's one of the generals, right? You have uh, who is right? Who's Eurydice? She uh, she's is she Roxanne's sister or cousin or? Who's that? No, uh, no, 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 Eurydice. Yeah, Eurydice yeah. was. Um, Oh God! Well, you and Gorg know the the, the the genealogy better than I do. She, she is the know. wife of Philip, and she is a cousin or a second cousin to Alexander. She's a royal uh, and a member of the uh, base of of the of the same basic line as um, Philip and. Uh, as Alexander's father, Philip, but she's like a second cousin, and the but her real connection is that she marries Philip III, who is Alexander's half brother, and is in our history it's undefined, but is in some way mentally challenged. Mm-hmm. In the book, we make him uh, uh, have a spectrum disorder. And which is treatable, but not curable. Um, well, there's um. But she in life yeah. was a very powerful character while she lasted. She was a persuasive public speaker. Managed. She really did uh, force a couple of Alexander's generals to resign. Uh. This was not a weak, weak person. Um, it didn't do her any good in the long run, but she was not a weak person. And she became, in the books, she's got the potential to become something really special in her own way. Her and Philip are probably going to be major characters in the next book. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we also have some some lower class or middle class characters uh, that are very fun. Merchant um, Atum Edfu, who is the first in line to, to get on that boat and get some trading going. And then there's the, um, I think he's a historical figure, Dinocrates, who's an engineer yes. in Rhodes, is it? He's historical, yes. So uh, speak about these guys uh, shortly um, if you can. They were, uh, they were, they, these are a couple of engineers who 2,000 years later are still remembered for what they did. The first one basically designed the city of Alexandria, and the second one 
aside from designing the sewer system for the city of Alexandria, also designed mining pumps and uh, a bunch of a bunch of other stuff, and is probably the the, the father of modern uh, pumping systems and water management. Uh, they were they were on this along the same lines as the guy with the fulcrum, as in. Uh, I think it's Archimedes. Give me a, a long uh, lever, and a, long, yeah. a full yeah. and a long enough lever, and I'll move the earth. These were that kind of guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're guys that if you show some modern things to, are not going to think, oh, magic, I can't figure it out. They're going to say, how did they do that? Let's start working on it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, one of the things and that happens also, only. yeah, one of the things that happens with a number of these, um, characters at a time is <laughs> their first reaction to a whole lot of stuff is, okay, how can I make money off of this? Um, you know, they're not ooing and eyeing over the, you know, uh, the, the, the incredible magical um, powers of, of the of the people just arrived. And that's honestly pretty true to life. I mean, if you go look at how most cultures react to um, <clears throat> You know, when when Western civilization shows up, there aren't really that many that are just bowled over by it. Um, I mean, that is a reaction you can get, but it's not a, it's not the most common or typical reaction. It's much more. We wanted to show that in the in the in the. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah, you got the the uh, Ed Poo who you know his first reaction looking at the thing is okay. They've got to have rowers on there. <laughs> Something has to be moving those great big things. So that means they got to have rowers, which means they're going to need to feed them. <laughs> and I can provide that, you know. And uh, and one of the things that happens a lot of people is they're very smart. I mean, you know, I said people at the time are no dumber than people today. Uh, so they would figure out a lot of stuff, uh, and often very, very quickly. Um, so. That's uh, one, of the, one of the things I always find is, is, is enjoyable about these things. Well, what would be, um, what might be the long-term plan if if our if our cruise ship can survive uh, the present moment? Um, what might be some some paths that they think about taking? I mean, we've already dropped that they that they go to sing to Trinidad to get some oil. Uh, but what what are they going to do? Five thousand um, people in the past like this for the rest of their lives. Try to build a society and survive. Right. Well, yeah. here's, here's, actually, I think there's enough. What are they going to do with the ship? I mean, uh, just go. Just uh, just suggesting, you know, in the book they might think about turning it into a uh, into a university, which they do think about, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and they kind of oh, do it. Yeah, I think there's enough scope in the, this series to expand in very much, not in the same exact way, but expand and, and tell many, many stories about them and what they're going to do, as there was in the 16, in the 1632 uh, in, in the Ring of Fire. Yeah. 
you can't make a some really big. There are some really big differences, though, and they're, and they're the ones that, that, um, what, what, what the character of the 1632 series were able to do is, is in a sense something pretty traditional, which is, uh, forge a, you know, pretty modern society. I mean, it's getting there out of what exists at the time. That's practical in the 1632 setting because you're already in the 17th century. You're, you know, they call this the early modern period. It's not medieval. You have uh, very high levels of literacy. Uh, the truth is, all the basic concepts of modern democratic societies already existed in the 17th century, and people have been rebelling over them for quite a while. It's just what the Americans brought to it was uh, somebody could just actually demonstrate, hey, it works. Look, we did it. You know, we actually did it, so that that infuses people with a huge amount of confidence, which they wouldn't have otherwise. But um, none of that exists in in the Alexandrian period. I mean, you just don't have any of those prerequisites. So it's not really realistic or practical to be thinking in the same terms. Number one and number two, it's particularly not practical because. Um, um, it's not just a question of the of the abstractions. It's 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 what they would have to do in order to recreate recreate something even roughly like what exists in the 1632 series. It's just not within their capability. It's just purely not, and there's no way I could see where they could do it over any realistic period of time. So they have to essentially come up yeah. with something completely different. And what they wind up coming up with is. A, a strategy that's that's kind of interesting. It's very, very different from what the people in the 1632 series wind up doing. Um, and what they largely wind up doing is um, is is turning that ship into first. First, it's 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 a university, so it's just passing on a lot of knowledge and learning, uh, which is valuable in and of itself. Um, and beyond that, and this is the really to me kind of fascinating thing because there's never been anything like this has ever happened in real history they provide a sort of safe space for everybody who's involved in a power struggle um, and that never happens in real history um, but it does here because you know people can in a sense I think we use the expression, if I remember, guys, is people can sort of, you know, do a timeout and, uh, you know, yeah. can say, all right, uh, rather than, than run the risk of getting myself killed, I'm just going to go on board the ship and I'll be safe there, um, which they are, but they also have to abide by ship rules. Um, so it's it's really quite a different, uh, it's actually what I, what I found interesting about it. I, I, I really would not have been interested in writing a clone of the 1632 series, but this is quite different. The whole dynamic's different. And, um, and you know, how I that think it has as much scope. I think it has as much scope in terms of, of their effect on the society. They're not going to be able to turn it, turn uh, Alexandrian Europe into America, but they are, but there is 
a little America in Trinidad. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right about that. And and then they're they're dropping seeds. Then the, then there's a small colony in Israel, uh, and I suspect that and that there are the little um, radio stations all over the place. So there are these seeds of not exactly democracy, but of the modern way of thinking that are out there all over the world and that are going to have different effects in different cultures. And there's a there's a lot of room for a lot of the complexity and a lot of stories, I think. Yeah. What will there perhaps be other books in the sub-series of the Ring of Fire universe? What, what might develop? You know... Uh, Tony, as you well know, there's always a practical element. This we got to see how the how the sales go. Yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, if the sales are good enough to sustain a series, then yes, um, the, this certain this particular story framework has the wherewithal to be turned into a series. We could do it with this one, but you know, it's it's uh, the devil's always in the details. It's just a question of you know, well, okay, that abstractly sounds great, but. Um, you know, how well is it selling? I mean, that's what you always, you know, what it always comes down to. Um, and we won't know that for a while yet. But uh, it certainly, I never turned Time Spike into a series. That was the, the first of the C.D. Shard novels we did that was not 1632. Um, and I didn't do it because I didn't think there was a basis for it. Um, I just couldn't see... I just couldn't see, well, first of all, who would the bad guys be? Um, you know, because it's a certain type of story. It's, you know, it's action adventure. And and for that, yeah, you do need bad guys. And, and you know, who would they be, given that by the end of the of Time Spike itself, the patties have basically all been dealt with. So, you know, what are you going to do? And, and I don't ever want to write a series just for the sake of doing a series. Um, um, I've never done that in the past, and I want to start doing it now. Um, so we'll just have to see. But I think with this with this particular story, it's different. I think there's there's plenty of, uh, of room uh, where you could make this a series without, without any kind of, you know, you really have to be careful to avoid Seriesitis, where you just make something a series for the sake of making it a series. Uh, it's always a temptation, but you got to resist it. Yeah. Well, it's the kind of book that that leaves the reader thinking about what's you know how it's all going to go and how it's going to develop, and that that feels series like to me. So maybe we'll we'll go ahead with that. What other projects are y'all working on? Well, we, Paul and I have written a couple of three books since we turned that one in, and then Eric has us going. Uh, when we get to it, we're going to be doing a sequel to Bartley's Man, uh, which will sort of tie back into the main series, which is, I think, going to be done by Ring of Fire Press. Uh, yeah, there's that. We also, we've, uh, we've written a, a, a novel that's sort of a... Um, a medieval fantasy, um, across between all history and fantasy, we're shopping around, um, called The Demons of Paris. Um, 
And, you know, we haven't sold that yet, but if we do, then, you know, we'll continue that. Um, and there will be coming up, but not right away, um, more books I'll be doing with them in the 1632 series. It's just that, you know, you got to kind of wait for... I mean, it's just, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that, um, you know, I mean, Paul and Gorg and I wrote the sequel to um, Kremlin Games. God, when did we finish that, guys? It was finished quite a while ago. It's at least three um, years ago. A couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, but, you know, it just, had to, it just sort of sat there because, you know, um, <clears throat> You know, we just had to sort of wait for a slot to open up. Yeah, and you had to... Uh, of time to go by me. Yeah, and you had to wait for uh, the Far successful enough. defense of Europe at Vienna, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, you had to, right, exactly. You had to sort of let the series catch up to it. So, you know, that's just an ongoing reality working in a 1632 series. And we're not the only ones who face it. Um, lots of people have. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know what will come of the, uh, you know, what we'll wind up doing with the heirs uh, uh, of uh, the Alexandrian inheritance, but um, you know, I'm hoping we can turn it into series because there's plenty of there's plenty of um, oh, what's the word I want? Not room exactly, but um, <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, great that, scope for the imagination, as Anne of Green Gables would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, it would it wouldn't be something that I don't think would strike people as being well. This is pretty flimsy basis on which to build a series because it's really not. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I'll have to say. Yeah. Well, the book in itself is uh, the novel in itself is fascinating enough uh, as it is. It's really a, a fun read, and it is the Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paul Goodlett, and it's now available at booksellers everywhere. So, Eric Gorg and Paula, thank you so much for being here to to talk with us. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. 
And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. That was asked well enough that he was persuaded she already knew. No point in lying, then, or in remaining silent. I'm a manufactured human, pilot. The humans, so I don't offend the complex logic laws. There are also laws against manufacturing humans, I believe. A lot harder to prove manufactured. I see. There came another pause, as if the pilot were considering his answer. Are you the uncles? He blinked. Hadn't seen that one coming. No, pilot, he said, not surprised that she knew the uncle and that she expected the same of him. People on the underside knew their neighbors, that was all. This vulnerability of yours, which you have been working to limit, how much danger does it bring to our ship and our mission? Well, that was the question, wasn't it? Pilot, I don't know. The pool of available directors is pretty small. He allowed himself a moment of grim humor. Smaller now, thanks to Haz. Even if they mean to have me, no matter what, it's going to take time for word to get back to the school, time to send another team out, and then they have to find us. I'm not saying it's impossible that they will. I understand, she said, after his words ran out. If she'd been human, Tolly had the notion she'd have sighed right then. This vulnerability... What is its nature? An implant? A construction? Something biologic? He shook his head. Pilot, I don't know. He hesitated, then decided it wouldn't do any harm to tell her. I figured to steal the specs back when I was young and really stupid. I can tell you that the directors keep them locked up tight, and that they're stinting of praise when one of the students shows initiative and has a go at the locks. I see. Describe to me, please, the effects of control. My will is overridden. My self is submerged. I am compelled to do such things as the operator deems necessary. When I have completed a mission, I am allowed to return to what I believe to be myself. He felt his lips quirk. This may be a flaw in the system. Perhaps so. One would assume that there was a reason for it, however. Yes'm. Could I ask you a favor, co-pilot to pilot? Yes, if it seems to you that I've fallen victim to my vulnerability, will you please kill me? Her face came fully visible for an instant before the pilot angled the screen downward and tipped slightly forward in a bow. Yes, she said, I will. It soothed him to hear her say it, which was maybe stupid, still, he figured her good for the promise. Whoever designed Pilot Tokel had been uncommon clever. 
she wouldn't be caught in any whistling glamour. It came to him then that he had two solid allies standing at his back, given what Haz had already done for him and that thing the pilot promised. Two allies, people he could depend on without question. He couldn't remember in all his life having so much as one ally, and he hoped, his eyes prickling a little as he looked to his screens, he very much hoped that he would stand just as firm for them. One question more, Pilot Tolly. He drew a breath and turned back to face her. Yes'm? I wonder if you have heard a rumor, let us say. Presently, I hold it no higher than that, a rumor of a very old A.I., recently wakened. The uncle may be in it, there's that rumor also, but surely he would be, so it's no surprise there. An ancient A.I. waking, reawaking, it would be. And if it were reawakening, then it had likely fallen asleep due to lack of needed repairs. The uncle was well-placed to repair such a thing. Tolly laughed and shook his head, looking up at the pilot with an apologetic grin. I haven't heard any such rumor myself, but I've been out of the loops this last while. He felt his grin widen. Sure would be interesting, if true, he said and saw an answering grin in the shadows of the pilot's face. It would be, she said, wouldn't it? That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Randy Majori, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jugowitz. And a trip to San Juan Capistrano where the butterfly effects have made all their winter migration after causing Napoleon to conquer Russia, which is a land filled with intelligent dinosaurs and panda bear janissaries killed by Hitler turning his mustache into a double agent and stopped Kurt Cobain from committing suicide so that Nirvana could play summer firework shows and Boston Pops concerts into the 21st century plus long sighs of contentment and loud cries of exultation to Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, authors of The Alexander Inheritance. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>